Well, uh, we are still gonna still in this um, sermon series, and and we will be for as long as I have ideas for it. <laughs> um, about uh, the vision of the church and who we are, and and kind of how to put uh, the vision into practice. We've kind of gone through every every little piece of the vision, but we started with the the question of why do congregations exist? Again, not the same question as why do uh, why does the church exist, but why do individual congregations exist? And, and after kind of exploring scripture, I think we came up with this idea that congregations, uh, the point and the purpose of an individual congregation is to represent the body slash work of Christ in their location. Um, I just felt like the urge to just preach about that again, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep going. <laughs> Um, that's the point of a congregation. It seems like sometimes there, it's really easy for us to get sidetracked and do other stuff, right? Like a lot of other stuff. Um, but that, that is our, our vocation as a, as a congregation is to keep the work of Christ alive and present in the place that we are at. And then I talked about the next week about how, um, one thing that we can be sure about when we're thinking about the will of God, a lot of people try really hard to explore and to figure out what is the will of God. But there's this thing that Scripture says is unchanging about the will of God. It will not change. You do not need to discern it. You do not need to go in a closet and pray about it. It is. It is. And that is that Christ's Spirit will make you more like Him. He is determined. So if you're ever wondering if there is mystery about things, ask the question, what's going to make me more Christ-like? What looks more like Jesus? That's probably a really safe direction to go. Um, anyway, the, uh, so we talked about that, about how uh, God's activity in the world right now, in us especially, is determined to make us Christ-like. God is going to do that. He is, as long as we participate with him, he is going to do that. And so we talked then about how we've got this, um, this vision for our church that kind of stems out of those two ideas that we uh, – on the one hand, what God is doing in us is to make us more Christ-like. But on the other hand, that, that making of us more Christ-like does things in the world. right? It overflows um, in our location. So the, the, the point of the vision of River Street is that we are growing into Christ-likeness for one another and for our neighborhood. Um, so this determined work of God to make us more Christ-like, that we can hone in on any time that we decide that we're ready to cooperate with God. He's going to do that. That spills over into these relationships in this pew. That is designed to spill over into these relationships. And then additionally, it is uh, our conviction that the Spirit has come alongside us and said, this River Street, this neighborhood is entrusted to you. And what Christ does in you, that determined will of God and activity of the Spirit in you that's making you more Christ-like. Not only does it need to spill over into the relationships in, the, in this pew, but it needs to spill over into our community. And so that's, uh, that's the, the basis, the foundation of kind of the vision and why we have the vision that we have here at River Street. And I, I thought um, it would be appropriate. I've given a lot of, of why and what um, conversations, but today I want to talk more about how. All right, so we talked about why we are this way, why we have this vision statement. We talked about what the vision statement is, but now today I want to take a turn and start talking about how you do that. What would it actually look like 
Um, what steps can we take to actually do this? And so I thought, you've got Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, um, and it has, it has all three of these things in it. Okay, um, It has the idea of being more Christ-like, it has the idea of loving one another, and it has the idea of loving our neighborhood in there. So I'm going to read it again, just uh, quickly highlighting those areas where I think I can find this sense of, of our vision in this, in this text. So he starts off and he says, My friends, if anyone is detected in a transgression, you who have received the Spirit should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Loving each other, right? Part of loving each other is uh, having hard conversations and especially doing it gently. We've, we either major on the gentleness side and we avoid the hard conversations or we major on having the hard conversations minus the gentleness. But they're, they're both supposed to be there. Um, Take care that you yourselves are not tempted. Bear one another's burdens, for in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Again, loving one another. For those who are nothing think they are something. For if those who are nothing think they are something, they deceive themselves. All must test their own work. Then that work, rather than their neighbor's work, will become a cause for pride. For all must carry their own loads. We're going to talk about that a little later. It may not seem like it fits in right at the moment, but I think it, you'll see how it does. Those who are taught the word must share in all good things with their teacher. That sentence, I don't know when uh, Lori was reading, if it stuck out to you as sort of being out of place. Um, it's, uh, so far, he's talking about not being prideful, and he's talking about restoring one another. And all of a sudden, he says this thing about um, everything that you've learned from your teacher, you need to share with your teacher. Right? The idea is Christ-likeness. Right, that everything before this sentence and everything after this sentence drives from the idea of sharing in Christ's character. So in other words, what he said before it is about this is what Christ would do. This is, this is Christ-like um, action toward one another. And everything after this is also going to be sharing in all good things with the teacher. So right here in the center is Christ-likeness. Uh, now i got to find my spot over again. Uh, <clears throat> do not be, de be deceived. God is not mocked. Uh, for you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. So then, whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, and especially for those of the family of faith. That is a really key phrase, because a lot of times when we go to the New Testament and we see things about all or everybody, we think he's talking about the church, right? He's talking about the Christians. And a lot of times he is. But in this particular place, that would be uh, not true, because the very next sentence is, and especially this other group of people who are also part of the all but are not the all, and those people are the people of faith. So working for the good of all or for our neighborhood is something we should take every opportunity to do, and especially for one another. So there it is, all of it packed right in to this, becoming like Christ for the sake of one another and for the sake of our neighborhood. Um, I want to now take a look at some things we've talked about that, like I said, I want to talk now about the how, though, because I think the how is in there. How do we do that? Yes, we're supposed to do it, but what does that actually look like? There's this first sentence that I want to draw to your attention here. I, I've kind of, I've got three different ideas, and they're all bigger than the, the other ones. I've sort of 
minimized the text um, and Ella magnified other texts so that we can kind of get these three pieces of advice, pieces of advice for how to make these things happen. The first one is bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one, one another's burdens um, is something that we're going to talk really about today. That is the, the key of everything that, that we're, we're after, is bearing one another's burdens um, and how that, uh, how that can, can take on flesh in our relationships. I remember when I think about bearing one another's burdens and I think about what that looks like and, uh, and the most drastic experience of bearing someone's burdens in my life, it's definitely going to be parenting. Um, because unlike with my relationship with you, I expect you to potentially bear my burden back, right? But with a four-year-old, he can't bear burdens yet, you know, like that doesn't work. So my, uh, a couple years ago we had, um, my entire family had strep throat all at the same time. And when I get, uh, sick and I get a fever, like my body doesn't know how to do like a 99 degree fever. You know, that just, it just skips 99, skips 100, goes straight to 101, 102, 103. So with strep throat, I had 104.2 degree fever. I actually called Michael Harkema that night and said, um, I'm sleeping in a bed by myself because I am like sweating like crazy and this is awful and I don't want, like, I don't think Abby was quite sick yet. Like, so just in case, um, I'm going to call you, like, keep your, keep your cell phone on in case I wake up and my, my temperature goes up anymore. Anyway, before that though, Elliot had a fever too, and he had a sore throat, and he just felt awful. And he said uh, he really wanted me to put him to bed still, right? Because I put him in bed every night, and I was just like a heap of flesh. I mean, I was just like nothing beyond that. And uh, but I, I said, uh, Abby read him the story, and then he's like, Daddy, please come and, and put me in my bed. <sighs> okay. And so I literally, I literally crawled to his bedroom. I was just so depleted and just felt so awful. And I just, he, like Abby laid him in bed and I just put my hand on his forehead and I, I was laying there on the ground and I fell asleep with my hand on his forehead and he fell asleep with my hand on his forehead too. And uh, then I woke up a little while later because you don't sleep in that sort of position for very long, even when you are sick. Um, and I, then I crawled over to the other bedroom and, and went to sleep in our spare bed. Um, and I was thinking about, like, I wouldn't do that for anybody, you know? Like, and I don't think I'm called to do that for just any old person. First of all, most of you, if I've got a 104-degree fever, you don't want me to touch you, right? Like, we, we don't have that kind of relationship, and we probably don't need to have that kind of relationship. But Elliot was just in this stage where he needed his daddy, and I just, he's my son, so I did that. And I think about, uh, that's the way Christ often bears our burdens, but the image here is actually not that for the church. The church is not necessarily, sometimes I think it looks like that, but the image here is super fascinating because he's, when he first says, bear your own burdens, in the very next paragraph, he says this, for all must carry their own loads, which is actually just another way of saying all must carry their own burdens. Does that make sense? He's just saying it a different way. So on the one hand, bear, carry, bear one another's burdens. That's written in a command sort of fashion, right? It's a, the Greek is called an imperative. that You have to do this. Bear one another's burdens. Uh, at the same time, 
everyone must bear their own burdens. And so while Christ often will bear a burden for us that we cannot bear on our own, for each other, there is this two-way street. There is this um, equality of responsibility. There is this image where sometimes, I think, I, again, I think there are some times where those among us are just crushed and they really need the church to come around them and to really carry everything. That happens. But in our actual everyday relationship, there is this sense where we have a responsibility too of our own burdens. And I think this is key for how we come up with the how because what happens most often, I think, is that good, well-meaning Christians hold their burdens so closely and are not ready to admit that they're burdens and therefore don't carry them and therefore don't share them and therefore the person who would really like to share their burdens with them can't because that action has not been taken to kind of own the burden. Does that make sense? I'm going to talk about it more in depth here in a minute. I've got another uh, another thing here. Um, which we kind of already talked about. So then whenever uh, we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all and especially for those of the family of faith so that this how doesn't just, uh, this relationship of bearing burdens, I don't think is just for us, but we're also going to think about how that spills over into our neighborhood and community. And I want to tell, tell you this story about bearing burdens that I just found absolutely fascinating and, uh, and interesting too, is, uh, and I think helps illustrate the point. This is a uh, 18th century um, executioner's cart. Okay, in the in the in Britain, they would in England they would uh, for a long time when someone had been tried and found guilty and had been sentenced to be executed, they would carry them on an open platform and they would and they would cart them through town and they would uh, they would execute them. But what would happen is that people would get so angry and mobs would come out and the mobs would throw things at them. And sometimes they would throw things at them that were so hard that the person would actually die before they got to the executioner's table. And so in about the seven, or late 17th, 18th century, they built these uh, cages essentially to protect the prisoner. Now, people would still come out and they would still throw rotten cabbage and rotten tomatoes and those sorts of things at the person who was being executed. And so it was a horrible experience. Obviously, you're on your way to die. Not very fun. It was awful. Yeah, add, uh, add insult to death penalty. So uh, in, the, in the 18th century, a guy named John Wesley, who I've told several stories about, um, even recently actually, he, uh, he's reading in Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus says, you know, you visited me in prison. Um. And, uh, and he's convicted that he needs to uh, start ministering to those who are being executed. And so John Wesley, who's like the most famous man in all of England at the time, um, even the, the king was slightly jealous of him for how popular he was. Um, he, uh, he would go and he would request to be in the executioner's cart with the person who was about to be executed. Now, what that meant was, and they would say yes, because he was John Wesley, right? You didn't say no to him. He had that kind of cachet. Um, so he gets in the cart. Guess what happens to him? He gets the cabbage thrown at him. He gets the rotten tomatoes thrown at him. He gets 
that side of the experience. And he would sit down and he would say to the, these executioners, because he kept wonderful records of pretty much everything he ever said. Um, if he had a weakness, it was probably that he thought he was as good at speaking as he actually was. Um, <laughs> anyway, he, uh, he'd say to them, you know, I can't help you with your fate in this life. But I do know about a God you can trust. And if you put your trust in him, he can change your fate on the other side of this. Right? And so he would do that. And he would do, I mean, you just imagine you're speaking to somebody, you're having this end of life conversation, all the while people are spitting at you, they are yelling and screaming and throwing things at you. And by the way, the person in the cart, by all that you know, is guilty. Maybe they weren't guilty. They didn't exactly have the best uh, CSI back then. But, um, but they probably, you know, a good percentage of them were. And he's standing there and he says, I'm going to get into your burden. And Wesley would write that some people, some people would say, would be very moved by that. By the idea of a God who would love them even in the midst of this horror of, of life. This, these horrifying final moments. And then other people would say, nah, not interested. And they didn't have the power of letting uh, John into their cart. Like that, that was not up to them. But there was this two-way street. Yes, John Wesley did this amazing Christian uh, what's the right word? Christ-like thing. Getting into these horrifying situations for the sake of this person. But it was still up to the person to say, yes, I want to participate in that. John Wesley could get into the cart, but it was the person who decided whether John Wesley and what he brought with him could get into their hearts. So there's this image of this, this sharing of burdens has to be both sides cooperating. Even in really hard uh, moments, even in a space where a Christian goes to every great length to bear the burden with someone. Just as an aside, I talked about how you know they, may be, they were probably guilty and, uh, and Wesley goes anyway. And, and I just think, too often Christians want to, they, we, we talk about people need to get what they deserve, right? That's, that is not the gospel. The gospel is you do not get what you deserve. The very core of our faith is you do not get what you deserve. So don't let people influence you with that kind of logic. That may make sense in the world, but it does not make sense in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we are all there even though we don't deserve it. So no, none of these people probably deserved Wesley going through that process for them. But that's the gospel. So too, whatever burden you need to be borne by somebody else, doesn't matter whether you deserve it or not. I want to I want to share a story uh, from the uh, from Jesus's experience since we were talking about being Christ-like. This is from Mark chapter 3, and it's the story of a man with a withered hand. Okay, Just as a preface to this, Jesus is in the synagogue, so it's a Saturday, and the Jews are not supposed to do any work on Saturday, and Jesus has already done a couple of things, he and his disciples, that have really grated against 
the uh, the Pharisees and the other local leaders, and they don't want Jesus to work on the Sabbath. They don't want him to break what they think is the is the law. And uh, and Jesus um, it comes into this synagogue, and they the Pharisees are waiting because it happens that there's a man in this synagogue who has a withered hand, okay, a hand that doesn't function, and they want to know. They are just waiting, just waiting to pounce on Jesus. If he decides to heal this man, just waiting, can't wait, salivating. So again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, come forward. The Pharisees see this man as... A device for entrapping Jesus. They see the man and his wound as a trap. They see the man and his wound as a trap. Jesus looks at him and says, come forward. When we are going to decide to get into each other's nightmares, get into each other's horrors, we first have to be willing to see that. We first have to be willing to look into each other's eyes and say, come forward. I want to talk to you. I want this. Because so often, I think, in my Christian experience, um, I've been seen as someone who could provide this service. Or I've been seen as someone who could uh, fulfill this duty. Or I've been seen as someone um, who does this or does that. You know, who's a runner or who's this or who's that. Very few have taken the time to look me in the eyes until I actually came to this church, very few have took the time to look me in the eyes and really see me and want to see me and what was going on inside me, what kind of hurts I had. Very few wanted to see the pain of the withered hand. And the Pharisees and the local leaders, they see the withered hand, they see it's there, but it's just an opportunity for them to make a gain. So just as Wesley needed to see that there was a problem with the way that England put people to death, needed to see that opportunity to get into the cart, so too we need, if we're going to do this bearing one another's burdens, we need to be willing and train ourselves to see one another's wounds. They watched him to see whether he would cure uh, him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, come forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Whoops, sorry. Again, with this, this sense, I've already sort of talked about uh, the idea of him saying, come forward. Then he has this, this accusation against the Pharisees, too. Is it, is, it, is it really not lawful to save a life on the Sabbath? In other words, he wants them to not look at all the details of the way that they've interpreted the laws of the Sabbath. He wants them to look at life. He wants them to look at people. He wants them to look at the human. Too often, for instance, um, I, we don't do this, but you've all been to churches where this happens, right? 
when, when you are evaluating the job that Tim's doing, or you're evaluating the job that I'm doing, do you look at the details of it, or do you look at me as a person? Right? Am I just a preacher, or am I Matt, who has dreams and cares and pains and aches and failures and faults? Right? I, I, that's a little self-serving for me to say it that way. But it's true. When we evaluate one another in the church, we have an obligation in Christ to see one another the way Christ sees us. And that doesn't mean that if I do something really bad, you can't come to me and say, hey, that was really bad. But it does mean that that's not how you evaluate me as a person or Tim in the job that he's doing or anybody else in any kind of job that they do here. We see people. We look for life and human issues. That is where the Spirit leads us to look because the Spirit is the same Spirit of Christ that is alive in us. So he says, to save a life or to kill, is, is it really lawful? Not lawful to save a life. And of course, he's angered and grieved at the hardness of heart and said to the man, and this is the other piece to that puzzle, he says to the man, stretch out your hand. Jesus does this almost every time he heals somebody. There are some occasions where he doesn't, but there's always this action on the part of the person being healed, which is exactly what I'm trying to talk about. This is a two-way street. We have to want to bear one another's burdens. We have to want to see the aches and the pains of one another. But we also have to be willing to share those aches and those pains with someone. We also have to be willing to admit that they are aches, that they are wounds, that we have a withered hand. And Jesus asks us to stretch it out. Right? The person must participate. And so we have to have this, um, this DNA here where we provide opportunities not only to bear burdens, but also to offer burdens up. The question is, what are do we, we to one another, right? I know that we don't see each other as devices. We don't see each other as opportunities to make gains, but we can't get um, complacent about that. We have to see each other the way Jesus saw that man in the synagogue. We have to see life. We have to see the urgency of human need. We have to see wounds. And then we also have to stretch out our hands to one another. You know, um, I don't know, this just came to my mind, but uh, anybody ever watch MASH? Like the old show, MASH, right? So Radar uh, was in that show, and he had a withered hand. It was super interesting, though. In that day and age, it was uh, seen as unflattering or something, or unsightly or unseemly for it to be a film. So you can catch it in that show all the time where he's doing unique, interesting things to hide his withered hand. As if it's not part of him. It's not allowed. It's not good enough to be part of the show. We just say right now, there's nothing going on inside your heart that's not good enough to be part of the show. Where Christ is alive, we stretch out our hands to one another and we bear each other's wounds and we bear each other's burdens. There's in in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, I, th I think it is. Might not be there. <laughs> Where he, he says... Uh, 
Whenever somebody celebrates, let's celebrate. And whenever one member grieves, let's grieve. And so in a sense, your withered hand is my withered hand. Your ache is my ache. So then finally, really nitty gritty, how do we do that? How do we see one another? How do we make this whole process happen? It's actually not rocket science. Um, <laughs> it's too easy to overthink it. It's too easy to, I mean, I am someone who has struggled with, with social anxiety and I get all clammed up in certain situations even today as, a, you know, as an adult. I was really, really bad when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so sometimes it's just too hard to think about how we do this. But I really think it's simple. It's the same kind of things that the New Testament church did, breaking bread together. We don't have a monthly potluck just so that we can kind of have fun and eat food, each other's food. We certainly don't have a monthly potluck so that we can evaluate one another's cooking. <laughs> we have a monthly potluck so that we have this opportunity to see one another. We have this opportunity to see one another. There's a purpose. There really is a deep spiritual purpose, at least in my mind, for almost everything that we do. Why would we go to the beach together? It actually does not have to do with going to the beach. It has to do with the fact that often when we go and we do things that are fun, we're more likely to build a bond with one another and to share one another's burdens. Here's, the, here's a super practical one that I hope you'll, you'll really take to heart. And that is instead of, not instead of, but in addition to asking one another, how are you? Ask the question, how can I pray for you? Because when someone, when you look somebody in the eye and you say, how can I pray for you? We begin to feel seen. Because unfortunately in our culture, the question, how are you, is really just a stand in for hello. Right? Because nobody ever says, yeah, I feel like trash today. I really don't want to talk to you. It's really, things are awful, and I, I why am I here? <laughs> Maybe I've met one or two people who do that, but for the most part, like, we don't do that. Um, for the most part, hi, how are you? I'm doing good. Boom, off we go. But we have to pause and see one another. And I'm not necessarily just talking about our greeting time. I'm some of you are in small groups, I'm talking about small groups. How can I pray for you? I'm talking about um, another option is to go to, you know, go to somewhere one-on-one -on -one time with one another. Some of you don't like coffee. Get something else. I don't know. Go somewhere. Really, I would love it if everybody in our church picked like one person and just said, I'm going to spend some one-on-one -on -one time with this person. And I'm going to ask them, how can I pray for you? And I'm going to listen, really, truly listen. You've heard me tell stories about kind of nightmare internships. And one of the worst ones was with a mentor who just had no ability to listen. I mean, I just felt like every single time that I told him anything, he just decided that I said what he thought I said. And it did not connect at all with what I actually said. And unfortunately, that can be a, uh, if I'm honest, I know a lot of pastors who really struggle with that. So I pray often that I'm not like that. I think pastors get busy and they get hurried 
and we sort of get in this rut of just like interacting with people on sort of a surf surface level sometimes, I hope, I really truly hope that when you come and you talk to me, you feel like you've got my eyes and my heart and my ears. And uh, I hope you'll pray for that for me, that I do that because I get busy too and I get tired too. But there's, a, there's an art to listening to one another. It typically has to do with shutting up. <laughs> That's typically required. <laughs> um, making eye contact. You gotta, you gotta, so that the only thing that you're seeing is that person in addition. Like seeing is actually part of hearing. Anyway, learning together is another thing. We're going to be um, E.C. Bell. Uh, he's the pastor of Chehalem Valley Presbyterian. He and I are going to do a class together starting the first Wednesday in October. Um, we're going to start a class. It's going to be here on Wednesday nights. Haven't nailed down the time yet, but we're going to go through major themes of the Bible together. Now, one of the major projects and ideas and missions of that is so that we can, um, we can think about how to be Christ-like. We can gather that word of God so that we might share in all, all the good things of our teacher, right? Another part of that, though, is you're sitting side by side with somebody that you might learn with. Learning together creates often a, an, a balance in a relationship when you decide, hey, we're going to read a book together. Hey, we're going to do this or hey, we're going to do that. And then finally, be honest about your own struggles. It is not possible, in my experience, to have this kind of relationship without sharing about your own burdens, too. Um, people run away from relationships. People run away either metaphorically, like emotionally, or they literally run away from relationships when they do not sense that the other person is willing to lower themselves, to not think more highly of themselves than they ought. You notice that that was, uh, that was part of the instruction in this Galatians chapter. Because when you do not share your burdens, when you do not admit that you struggle, it's very hard to have a true bearing one another's burden relationship. And so I think these, these kind of uh, six things are just some hows that I set before you. I ask you to write down maybe and think about how you can infuse the things that we're doing at church with some of these things. And equally, that, uh, that we would infuse our interactions with our neighborhood with some of these things, too. And uh, as I explained last week, when I say neighborhood, I'm really talking about anybody who comes here. So Wednesday nights, they may not live in our neighborhood, but they're in our hood at that moment, right? They're there. So we, we're going we're gonna to treat them as they're part of this spot. So anyway, the, the final idea, did I not have that up the whole time? I'm really sorry if I didn't. <laughs> Uh, finally, may what is done in us overflow for the good of all. That's what I was talking about, that, um, that these things, we infuse these other relationships with these same sort of actions, that if you and I grow closer, if you and I become uh, more able to share in one another's burdens, I think it is the design of God that that relationship between you and I will overflow and benefit other people. And particularly in this church, it will benefit our neighborhood. It has benefited our neighborhood. Let's pray.
Jesus, I just uh, I thank you for these people in this room. I pray that you would just uh, help us help us to think of just maybe one, two, three people that we can do some of these things with, God, that we can see one another, that we can really have the space and time um, and, and ability to just look the person in the eyes and, and ask, how are you doing in a deeper level? How can I pray for you? And sharing meals together, God, can we do some of these things? Um, help us, relieve us for, of the burden of feeling like we got to be best friends with everybody in the room. And just help us to have a, a narrow vision of, of just a, a few that we can, we can do that with, God. But we just lay our church before you, and we lay, relay all these relationships that we have with one another and all the relationships we have with those in our neighborhood. And I just pray that you would knit us together with, with the love of Christ. Knit us together with the, the very um, actions that you took in your life on this earth. Fill us up, hold us together, weave us together tightly. Teach us, teach us to bear one another's burdens and to carry our own load. Teach us to have relationships that benefit one another and benefit our neighborhood. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.